Good morning. It's good to see you all. It's um, good to be standing here. It is humbling to stand here, but yet it's encouraging because each week um, I see you. I see you in, encourage one another, interact with one another, um, pray with one another, meet to study God's Word with one another. Um, so while it is a daunting task to to preach, it is... Um, it's easier when it feels like you're among family, and, and we are here. So uh, if you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn to Exodus. Um, we'll start at chapter 25. We'll, we'll bounce back and forth a little bit. But to begin this morning, as you turn there, I want to make it clear what I mean when I use the word presence this morning, because you'll hear, you will hear me say presence, dwell, be with. You'll hear me say these things. Uh, multiple times, but I'm going to confess up front that there is nowhere that we can go to escape the presence of God. He's everywhere. Okay, so that's the truth. We can't escape his presence in a general sense. Okay, he can't be confined to one place. So when I use the word presence this morning, what I'm mainly referring to is is his constant abiding presence among his people, uh, where he lives with them and dwells with them in a most uh, special and, and intimate way. And in beginning this morning, um, I want us to be reminded of the, the major themes of Scripture. And if you were in, Pastor Jimmy did kind of a CDM teaching class uh, about a year ago, and he used the four major themes of Scripture to kind of teach through that. And there's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And I want you to hold on to those themes. We'll, we'll sort of go through those. Um, because in each of those... Um, God's presence is a little bit different in each of them. So in creation, we know that God created all things from nothing except himself. The pinnacle of his creation being mankind. He created Adam and Eve, um, created Adam, placed him in a garden to work it, to keep it. And God told him he could eat of every tree in the garden with the exception of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if he ate from that tree, that he would surely die. God gave Adam a helper, Eve, and they were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in this garden, they walked with God. Major, major theme there. They had perfect fellowship with him because uh, all that he had created was very good and there was no evil in it. Um, they were in his presence. He was in theirs. He dwelled among them. So in creation, every human being, which at that time, all two of them, okay, in creation, every human being had the presence of God dwelling among them. But soon that changed. The serpent comes along and tempts and deceives Eve, and she ate the fruit of the tree and gave some to her husband Adam, and he ate also. Um, and then we hear in Genesis 3.8 that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So they had once experienced this perfect presence and, and fellowship with God, but that is no longer the case. And, and here we are introduced to the second major theme in Scripture, and that would be the fall. Sins entered the world, and death through sin, and God curses the serpent. He curses Adam. He curses Eve. Um, the Lord kicks them out of the Garden of Eden forever and places um, cherubim and flaming sword at the east, garden, east of the garden to, to guard its entrance. And in the fall, the most significant loss was the perfect presence of God among his people. In creation, all had the presence of God among them. Now in the fall, um, all lost that presence. 
and hold on to the significance of that loss as we study through um, Exodus today. But it's also important to note that God did not leave humanity without hope. This is where Scripture starts us down the path of, of the third major theme of Scripture, and that's redemption. In God's mercy and grace, he chose himself, and this would be kind of a review of what we've been through in Exodus so far. He um, chose for himself a people that he would pour his um, blessing out on, a people that he would dwell among. He chose Abraham. Um, this is towards the end of Genesis. But he chose Abraham, made a covenant with him to bless him, to multiply him into a great nation, to give him land, um, and that they would be his people and he would be their God. And he confirmed this covenant with uh, Abraham's son Isaac and with Isaac's son Jacob. And then one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, was sold into slavery by his other brothers and eventually finds great favor with Pharaoh in Egypt. And Joseph is set over um, all things there in the land of Egypt. And eventually Joseph and his brothers and his father Jacob are reunited and they, um, at the command of Pharaoh, come to live there in Egypt. And the Lord again confirms this covenant, um, confirms it with with Jacob, he tells Jacob, he said, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt because it is there that I'll make you into a great nation. And he said to Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I'll bring you up again. And then just before Joseph's death, he again reminds his brothers of this covenant. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And that brings us to Exodus. And if you remember from the beginning of Exodus, the nation of Israel has increased greatly, okay? But there's a new Pharaoh in town, so to speak, and he is oppressing the Israelites. Um, they're in bondage and slavery, and, and then it comes Moses. And, and God uses Moses to uphold his covenant that he made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And, and God sees Israel in their lowest state. Scripture says he heard their groaning and then he promises to bring them out of the affliction of Egypt and to redeem them. This is what he said. He said, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In other words, he is promising them his presence. And then last week we looked at the giving of the law um, and almost the simultaneous breaking of the law. And after, you know, after the people had sinned greatly, they worshipped the golden calf while Moses was on the mountain of, with God, um, if you'll remember, Moses interceded on behalf of the people. Um, he said in Exodus 33, um, the Lord said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to the Lord, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us out of here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Did you notice all of the presence language in there? All of the, the dwelling with, um, I will bless you, I will keep you, I will not leave you, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I'll bring you out of Egypt, I will be your God, I will take you to be my people, my presence will go with you. And this was huge for Israel. Um, what was it that made Israel distinct from all other people on the earth? It was the fact that they were the Lord's people. They had his presence. He was their God. And the evidence that he was their God is that his presence was among them. This morning in Exodus, we're going to be dealing with a huge, huge chunk of Scripture. You'll see in your worship guide there, there's quite a few chapters. Um, in fact, we're going to be dealing with 
13 of the last 16 chapters in Exodus. It's about a third of the book of Exodus. Um, and understand that a third, one-third of the entire book of Exodus is devoted to dealing with two subjects, pretty much, the tabernacle and the priests. And it comes in two large sections. First, you receive, um, you receive the instructions, or Moses receives the instructions, okay, this is how you are to do it. Okay, it's, it's how you are to construct it, how you are to set it up, how you are to tear it down, uh, how you are to move it, uh, how the priests are to cleanse themselves, wash themselves. So you get the instructions for everything, and, and then a few chapters later in 35, you actually read of um, the actual carrying out of those instructions. And you may be wondering, well, why spend so much time in detail on the tabernacle and the priests? Well, it has everything to do with what was lost in the garden. In the garden was lost the presence of God dwelling among his people. And the reason there's so much time spent on the tabernacle and priests in Exodus is because they are the means through which God will dwell among his people and they will have access to him. And this was huge for Israel. Um, so far, um, what we've seen is that the presence of the Lord was seen at Moses' tent of meeting. And, and to contrast Moses' tent with the tabernacle, Moses' tent was set up outside of the camp it was far off from the people, um, but today we're going to see a tabernacle, rather than being outside and far off from the encampment of the people, it's going to be directly in the middle of Israel's encampment, symbolizing that the Lord would dwell um, among them, in their camp, in their midst. Um, if you have your Bible in Exodus 25, let's start there in, in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel. And then in verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. Now if you turn, to, uh, turn over to Exodus 29, um, verse 42. So God has just... We're going to skip this right now, but I encourage you to go back and read it. God has just given Moses detailed instructions for the priests. Okay, What they're to wear, how they're to cleanse themselves, what they're to sacrifice, when and how to do that. And then he says there in, in verse 42 of chapter 29, It shall be, uh, speaking of this, this sacrifice he just uh, prescribed, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will, what? I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And then here again, the, this language of the presence and, and of God and him dwelling among. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt why? That I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Uh, it's pretty clear here in these two sections that the tabernacle, um, the priestly sacrificial systems, um, those were the means through which, again, that God was going to dwell among his people, and secondly, that his people would have access to him. And I want to pause here for a moment and see that, I want us to see the connection between last week, the giving of the law, and this week, the tabernacle, because I said earlier, God pretty much simultaneously gave the law and he gave the remedy for the people breaking the law. And Pastor Booney reminded me of this quote 
um, last week when we were talking through things, and it's from um, from James Montgomery Boyce in his book, uh, Foundations of the Christian Faith. Many of you maybe have read that, but in there, Boyce says this. He says, the law includes not merely the prohibitions before which we are condemned, but also the promise of a perfect salvation. When God gave the law, he also gave instructions concerning the sacrifices. When God chose Moses as the lawgiver, he chose Aaron as the high priest. It is as though God, in the moment in which he thundered out in the Decalogue, you shall not, also went on to say quietly, but I know you will, and so this is the way to get out of it. We see God being gracious and mercy, merciful to his people in giving the law and in giving the tabernacle and the sacrifices so that he could still meet with them and dwell among them. Uh, R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, the whole point of the creation of the tabernacle is to dramatize to Israel the promise of God that I will be with you. The tabernacles, no doubt, is a, a major piece in the storyline of Scripture. It, it doesn't get us, while it doesn't get us all the way down this road of redemption, it does get us further down that road. Uh, remember, we've gone from all humans having the presence of God among them at creation to no humans having the presence of God among them again, in in an abiding way, um, in the fall, after the fall, to now glimpses that some will have it, though not in a full and final way. But we're getting glimpses of the future, full redemption that will come through this, and these glimpses come through the shadow of the tabernacle, and that's what the tabernacle is. It is a shadow of future things to come. And more on that later, but um, let's spend some time now looking more specifically at the tabernacle and, and the priest. And we're not going to look at every minute detail of it today. Just won't be able to. Um, although I don't think there is anything wrong with doing it. I think it would be great value in looking at every minute detail. And this is why um, every detail, every minute detail, emphasized to Israel um, how to worship the Lord according to his commands, with his materials, by his design, by his layout, and Israel couldn't alter those details in any way at all. Every single one of those details signified how Israel was to rate, relate to the Lord, and therefore they were to worship God um, his way or no way at all. And the same is true for us today. Um, when we come in here each week, when we, uh, Pastor Booney and Jimmy are working out our, our worship guides and our liturgy, um, we are seeking to... One, worship the right God, and number two, worship the right God in the right way, um, based on what he has laid out in Scripture. So with that point made, though, we're not going to look at every minute detail. Let's, let's look at some of the major significance and symbolisms of the, of the tabernacle. Um, turn to Exodus chapter 35 now. Beginning there in verse 5, um, Moses has gathered the people of Israel, and he says, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. I want to pause here and I want to make a connection. Have you, ever, have you ever connected this back to the sovereign hand of God in planning for and ordering and providing everything that will bring about his good purposes? Think about it for a moment. The only way that Israel was able to make any of these contributions is because they had plundered the Egyptians on the way out of Egypt. 
God had told Moses and to tell the Egyptians, or to tell the Israel, to ask the Egyptians for silver, gold jewelry, clothing, um, and the Lord promised that he would give Israel favor inside of the Egyptians and that whatever they asked, the Egyptians would, would give them. So, so even back in the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, he is preparing for the building of this tabernacle. And we know that because we, we continue reading there in end of verse 5. Um, it says, Let them bring, bring contributions, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linens, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for settings for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And then we go on to read that the Lord works in and appoints and, and fills two men with the Spirit of God, Bezalel and Aholiab. He fills them with the Spirit of God. He fills them with skill. He fills them with intelligence. fills them with knowledge, craftsmanship. He, he filled them, again, going back to God's providence and, and ordering everything necessary to, to, to bring about His good purposes and wills. will. He works in Aholiab and in Bezalel to give them everything they needed um, to do the work necessary that God had prescribed, as well as to teach the others how to do it. Um, and it says the Lord went on and he filled the other craftsmen with skill and intelligence necessary for the construction of all that he had commanded. So Moses gathers these workers. He, he gives them the entirety of the contribution that had been brought forth. And Scripture says that the people kept bringing the contribution every morning. Um, they were beyond generous, but... It got exceeding, like their generosity was exceeding to the point where um, the workers went to Moses and said, hey, you need to tell the people to stop. We have more than enough stuff to do all that the Lord has commanded us to do and to build. We've got more than enough to do it. Um, now let's look at what they um, constructed. And I'm, I'm going to describe everything pretty much in a reverse order of the way it was laid out in Scripture because I want us to get the perspective as if we're walking up to this tabernacle in the middle, middle of the wilderness, um, kind of ourselves, and this kind of the order that we would walk up to it in. So, um, and there would be some pictures here as well. But um, you'll see that there was an outer court, okay, um, the white twine linen there. That outer court was 75 feet wide. It was 150 feet long. Just to give you an idea, this, this basketball court here is about 50 feet wide by 95, so it's a little bit bigger than this basketball court. Um, the sides were made of fine twine linen. They were attached to these um, pillars or posts that sat down in a, a copper base. They were stabilized there by some guy ropes and, and bronze pegs. The pillars were made of acacia wood. They were covered in bronze. They had a silver cap on them. And in this outer court, it was, it was open air. Um, and then if you'll notice, there's only one entrance, and that is there on the east end. Um, it's a 30-foot wide entrance, and it was veiled as well um, and the whole thing was about seven and a half feet tall and then upon entering the gate um, of the outer court there was and you'll see the first thing you would come to there would be the altar of burnt offering this altar is made of wood it's overlaid with bronze it's about uh, seven and a half feet wide seven and a half feet long and about four and a half feet high and it had um, horns as you can see there on the four corners of the altar, and sometimes those horns would be used to, to tie the sacrifice to the altar 
Um, but this was an altar of sacrifice and sanctification that made it possible for Israel, um, through the priest, to enter into the presence of God. And, and think about the prog- progression of walking in. Okay, you go into the gate of the outer court, and it, the first thing you see is this, um, this bronze altar. And it's, it's as if the Lord is saying to them and making it abundantly clear, as soon as you enter the gate, um, the only way to get to him was through the blood of the sacrifice. And then just past the altar um, was a basin. And you'll see kind of in the middle there, almost right in the middle of the encampment was, or, or the, the outer court was the, this bronze basin for ceremonial washings. It was made of bronze. Um, it was also made of mirrors, and it sat on a base made of bronze. And this basin symbolized the purity and the cleanliness required for fellowship with and service to God. Um, for Israel... Through the, the priest, this basin was the means by which this cleansing took place. Um, and again, think about the progression here. First you have the altar, and then you come to the basin. Um, I think the importance in that is that the sinners, the sinners here, they didn't, they didn't clean themselves up before coming to the altar. Okay? They, they came to the place of sacrifice with their sins, and then the cleansing was to follow that. And then we get to the tabernacle itself, um, the tent of meeting. And it was about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. And again, this also has a veiled entrance um, there on the east end of it. It was constructed of wood frame on three sides of it. Those wood frames were entirely overlaid with gold, um, covered on all but one end with four layers of uh, animal skin and cloth. And then this tent, the tabernacle, was divided into two rooms, um, when you went through the first entrance there, or you went, went through the entrance there, um, the first room was called uh, the Holy Place. It's 30 feet long, uh, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. Um, and in the Holy Place, there were, there were three items. Um, when you walked in to the right, you had uh, the table for the bread of presents. This table was made of acacia wood, again, covered, but, but now not covered with bronze, but it's covered with pure gold. Um, the vessels for the tables were made of pure gold. And then there was a loaf of bread for each of the 12 tribes provided on that table, indicating God's provision for his people uh, in their need. To the left, when you walked in the, the entrance there, was the, the golden lampstand. And this lampstand was made of one single 75-pound piece of gold, 75-pound block of gold. And it, was, it wasn't put together. It was one piece. They were to hammer it out into shape, um, and this lampstand was, lampstand was where light was kept perpetually burning, symbolizing the internal presence of God, the eternal presence of God among his people. And then straight ahead in the holy place, you have um, the altar of incense. The altar is also made of acacia wood covered with pure gold, and its purpose was to illustrate the work of prayer. The priests would offer their prayers at this altar for the well-being of Israel. And the significance of the incense um, as it was burning on the altar was that it, as it was burned, it was giving a pleasing aroma to, um, to that environment. I mean, if you can imagine the sacrifices and the burning of animals that was taking place there, the, the aroma probably wasn't very good. And, and yet at the altar of incense, there's this pleasant aroma that would fill um, the tabernacle. And then behind the altar of incense, um, you'll see there in the middle was the veil. It was made of purple, blue, and red yarns. They were woven with 
fine linen that was embroidered with cherubim on it. And this veil separated the tent into the two places. The, the first room, again, is called the holy place. The room behind it, 15-foot um, cube, basically, was the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, there was only the Ark of the Covenant. It was a chest, a box. All right? It was made of acacia wood, again, overlaid with pure gold inside and out. It was about 45 inches long. 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. And it had, as you can see there, gold moldings around it and gold rings. Um, there were poles that were inserted into the rings to carry it. It was not to be touched while it was being moved. Um, and these poles were also acacia wood covered in pure gold. And inside the chest, um, you had the tablets of stone, okay, the Ten Commandments. You had the rod of Aaron that budded. And then you had a, a pot of the manna that was gathered and preserved from God's provision of his people when they were in the wilderness. And then you have the most important part of, of this box was the lid, and it was called the mercy seat. It's called the mercy seat because the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol um, of God's throne. It was a throne of royalty um, as he sat over them in his authority as their king, and it was a throne of uh, divinity as he sat um, over them in a seat of judgment. Um, and joined to the mercy seat, you'll see there on top, were two cherubim of solid gold facing each other with their wings overshadowing um, the mercy seat. And the high priest, and only the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies. And he could only go in there once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. And, um, but only after he had gone through an elaborate cleansing ritual and, and sacri sacrificial ritual and and when he went in, he was um, tied with a cord by his ankle in case he was struck dead in the presence of God. But he would go in and he would sprinkle blood um, on the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. And in that act, um, in that once a year act, the high priest was, um, his sacrifice became a covering of the judgment seat of God that protected Israel from God's righteous judgment. To give you an idea of how much precious metal was used um, just, just in the construction of this, again, temporary structure that was meant to be taken up and torn down and moved and taken up again and torn down and moved. But um, 2,200 pounds of gold, just over a ton. 7,500 pounds of silver, nearly four tons of silver, and 5,300 pounds or almost two and a half tons of bronze. Um, in today's world, that's about $60 million in precious metals. That's not counting the wood, the skins, the fine linens, and the precious stones that were used. Um, so now that we have an idea of, of the layout of the inner and the outer court and the materials that are used for them, I do want to make a couple of just some general notes about those. Um, it's clear that this is not a permanent structure. It's a tent. And that's because the Israel had not arrived at the promised land yet. They were still wandering in the wilderness. They were a semi-nomadic people, and wherever they go, it was God who led them and promised to be with them. And, and again, the evidence that he was their people and he was with them is found in this portable, portable tent. Israel was not the only semi-nomadic people in that time, though. Um, when these other people would move, um, and they would set up their encampment. Um, 
their center tent was always occupied by their king. Okay, so, so these nomadic people, they would set up their encampments and the king was always in the middle. And for Israel, it was no different. But for Israel, um, with the tabernacle being the center of their encampment, it was symbolic that they had no king except the Lord. He was their divine king. If you look at the colors that were used, they also point to this reality. God is um, he's Israel's divine king, hence the reason that they use purple symbolizes royalty. And he is the Lord their God, um, hence the reason they use blue, um, showing his divinity. And he, as their king, is enthroned on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the innermost, um, holiest place. And then also notice the progression of materials used. Um, the closer an item is to the holy place, uh, the more precious the metal. Towards the outside, everything was bronze, and as you move in, there was some silver, and then the further you move in, it's pure gold. And then there's some of the details surrounding the layout and, the, and all the specific items that you find here in the tabernacle that seem to point towards the tabernacle being a step towards the restoration of what humanity lost in the Garden of Eden. Um, there's, you have the abiding presence of God in the garden, in the tabernacle. Um, you have the east-facing facing entrances. You have gold abundantly. You have um, the, the lampstand, which a lot of people say pointed to the tree of life. You have the law, the, the commandments there in the Ark of the Covenant saying, you know, a lot of people say that points to the tree of knowledge. And you have Adam and Eve who were um, kicked out of the garden. They were outside of it after they had sinned, and um, as this encampment is set up for Israel, um, they understood that everything outside of their encampment was considered unclean, representative of outer darkness, away from the area where God would dwell among his people and pour out his mercy and grace on them. And, and while the tabernacle, it does look back towards the garden, it ultimately looks forward um, to a full restoration of that paradise, a new Eden, a new heaven, a new earth, where God's people will spend eternity with him. Um, the entire work of redemption, the, his judgment, his mercy, his grace, um, can be found in the symbolism of the tabernacle where God dwelled with his people. So what does this mean for, for us? Does the tabernacle teach anything to people today? And I would say absolutely it does. Like Israel, the rest of humanity since the fall were born sinful separated from God, without his presence. Um, without his presence, we're not his people. Um, you could say it this way, he doesn't dwell among with, or within uh, the midst of people who aren't his. And again, his presence is there in a general sense, but it is not there in an abiding, saving way. And therefore, every unbeliever today has the same need that Israel had then. They need God. They need God to come and say, I will be your God, and you will be my people. They need God to come and dwell in their midst, within them. To go back to the major, screen, the major themes of Scripture, um, we need redemption. For Israel, this happened in a temporary way through the tabernacle and the priests and their sacrifices, but again, that was just a shadow of the things to come. True redemption comes only through the person and work of Christ. And he is the one who fulfilled everything that the tabernacle represented. In fact, Jesus is the true tabernacle. 
And while we can say he is the fulfillment of the whole of the tabernacle, he's also the fulfillment of all the parts as well. Um, think about all the parts. Okay, you have the altar of sacrifice there, bronze altar. Jesus is the altar. I mean, he is the sacrifice that brings about atonement and forgiveness for salvation. He is the basin of cleansing and regeneration. Scripture says he's the light of the world. He's the bread of life. And his work is described in Scripture as a pleasing aroma to the Father. Um, he's the faithful high priest through whom his people have access to God. It is his blood alone that satisfies the judgment and wrath of God and cleanses his people from their sin and from unrighteousness and covers them and protects them from God's righteous judgment. And in our remaining time this morning, I want us to see and look more specifically at some of the ways um, that Christ is the true tabernacle and fulfilled everything that it pointed to. Um, and we'll, we'll look at five points, though we could, we could triple that probably, but we're going to look at five. Um, first point, Jesus tabernacled among us. If you have your Bible, turn to John 1. John 1, starting there in verse 1. Read, in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, and this Word, meaning Christ, became flesh and dwelt. And that Word literally means He tabernacled or He tented among us. So the Word became flat, flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So like the tabernacle, Jesus' um, dwelling on earth was temporary. And with his presence here on earth, he was indeed God in our midst. And if you'll remember back to our study through Matthew, we kind of anchored ourselves almost every week back to one verse there. Matthew one twenty one, and it said, um, speaking of the, the incarnation of Christ, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place uh, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle, as Emmanuel, God with us. The second truth that we can connect this morning is that Jesus is the full and final sacrifice. I just want to go ahead and turn to Hebrews 10. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. We've all heard John the Baptist in seeing Jesus in in the book of John, proclaims that, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he's the full and final sacrifice. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 10, and look there in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So pointing back to the the Old Testament sacrifices at the tabernacle and later at the temple. And then in verse 4, um, 
important truth here, for it is, import, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Uh, he does away with the first, speaking of the tabernacle and later the temple, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And the second is that, um, and by that, um, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And I hope this sounds familiar to you, back to our, our series in Hebrews. Um, but, but this is how we are able to approach God now, through the sacrifice of Christ. Um, it, it wasn't on an altar. We, we can't approach him through an altar. We can't approach him through repeated sacrifices. Rather, um, we approach him through the cross. And the sacrifice on the cross was once, and it was for all, all time. I mean, that sacrifice propitiated the wrath of God and opened the doorway that we may enter into the presence of God, that he may dwell um, within us. And that brings us to our third point, is that Jesus is our faithful great high priest through whom we have access to God. Um, in Matthew, and stay there in, in Hebrews 10, we'll, we'll stay there, but in Matthew 27, um, if you'll be reminded that Jesus on the cross, he, he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If you'll remember, what was the purpose of that curtain? It was to separate the holy place from the most holy place. It was to separate that place that only one person, the high priest, could go in once a year um, with great fear and trepidation, since they had the cord tied to their ankle in case they were struck dead. That divider, that curtain, was torn in the death of Christ. And we read of that again in Hebrews 10, go down to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Jesus is the great high priest over the house of God, and it is his body that is the curtain that was ripped into to bring us into the presence of God. The barriers have come down. Um, the way has been made for us to enter into the most holy place. I mean, it is not through a high, it is not through an earthly high priest. It is through Christ, our great high priest. We no longer need the tabernacle or the temple. We don't need a priest interceding for us because of Christ, our great high priest. We hear in Hebrews that we can now confidently approach a holy God. Fourth point, 
that God is present with us today through His Holy Spirit. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swerve a little bit into Pastor Booney's lane, but he won't, he won't mind. Um, but I think it's an important point for us to make today. If you'll turn back to Exodus 40. Because um, if you'll remember that um, the Lord had said to Moses in Exodus 25, let them make a sanctuary that I may what? That I may dwell in their midst. And they did just that. They've built the sanctuary according to God's plans. Um, and let's see the result. Was, was, did God come through in his promise that he would dwell among their midst? Well, look there in Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But the cloud was not taken up. They did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. God came through on his promise. He said, build me a sanctuary and I will dwell in your midst. And he did just that. And the good news for us today is that what the Lord told Moses then is still true today. Um, the Lord has said that he will dwell in his sanctuary, he will dwell in his temple, and as we look today and ask the question, well, what is the temple today? It's his people. If we're believers, God's temple is us. And that is where he dwells through his Holy Spirit. And we know that from 1 Corinthians 3. Um, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Um, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And then later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the presence of God dwells within his temple today, that is within his people through his Holy Spirit. And then our last point for this morning is that God will be present with us for all eternity in the new heavens, in the new earth. And going back to the major themes of Scripture, now we're introduced to that fourth and final major theme, and that is restoration, or the return to paradise. All that was lost in the garden is now recovered, but even in an even greater way, because now there's no chance in the full and final restoration, the new heavens and new earth, there, there's no more chance of losing it. It can never be lost again. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Beginning there in the first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a, 
a loud voice from the throne saying, and again, hear all of the, the presence language in, in this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And again, here's the presence language. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. For the children of God, there is no better news. There's no better outcome. There's no better eternity. There's nothing better than spending eternity with God in his presence. But if you continue, there's also a, a sobering warning for those who are without faith, for those who do not believe, for those who do not know Christ. Look there in verse 8 of Revelation 21. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We can conclude this morning by saying that the tabernacle, it was an imperfect reality, but it pointed to a perfect reality. That God would dwell among His people in Christ through His Holy Spirit, and then He would finally dwell among His people in the new heavens and a new earth. In, in closing this morning, I want you to remember back to, to Moses from Exodus 33. Um, take hold of the desire that he had for God's presence and, and the the understanding that he had of the importance of it. Um, and for Moses, the promised land was, was worthless if God wasn't with them. More than blessings, more than laws, more than, sacri- more than anything, Moses wanted God. He understood that God's presence was life. So my plea for us this morning is this. Um, Desire God as Moses did. Not for what he can give you, but desire him for himself. Desire his presence in your life. Um, Rather than seeing him as a means to the end, see and understand that he is the end. Desire him so much that you will take anything in your life that brings you more of His presence. Understanding that, that that may mean riches, that may mean poverty. Understanding that may mean health, that may mean sickness. Let us be like Moses, desiring God's presence above all things. 
This morning we're going to come to the table here in a moment, and in doing so, um, as you come to the table, connect back to the things of the tabernacle with, with Christ, that He is the once and for all sacrifice, that it is by His blood and His broken body that the, the wrath of God was covered and satisfied and that the dividing wall of hostility was torn down and that presence with God was made possible. Um, come and remember those things this morning. Remember them in confidence. We'll pray for us. Um, we'll give some instructions for the table and then we'll, we'll come and take those together. So would you pray with me? Father, this morning, as we've given attention to your word and um, looked at a, a very imperfect rea reality pointing to a perfect reality, Father, would you help us to see those connections? They're not hard to make, but Father, help us see them in a way that we haven't before from your word. Father, help us to understand that it's, it is your presence that brings about life. Father, for those who have your presence um, through the faith that you have given them to trust and rest in the person and work of your Son and, and through the gift of the Spirit that you have given them, that there is life. And Father, for those who do not know you, who have not put their faith and hope and trust in you, Father, there, there's only life now, but it is fleeting and will one day end here on earth but will continue into eternity separated from you apart from your abiding presence. And if your presence in the life of the believer is the best thing that they could have then Father the, the lack of your presence in the unbeliever is the worst thing. Father pray even now that you would work in the hearts and minds of those who don't know you. Give them faith. Father, help them see that the way to you is through Christ and through Christ alone, through his body, through his blood. Father, would you grant them faith to trust in you? Father, as we come to the table now, pray that it would be a, a great time of remembrance, a great time of fellowship, that you would be honored in our partaking of it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.